The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the History of the World podcast magazine. Good day to you all, hot welders. Thank you for joining me here for this week's History of the World podcast magazine. And uh, thanks for being patient with me. Um, obviously, you've been waiting a while for this episode. And um, often uh, some of you will be wondering what's going on with the podcast and when the next episode's coming out. Um, don't worry, we're well on our way to uh, publishing the next episode of the History of the World podcast. Uh, which will talk about the, uh, the fundamentally, I suppose, the the time when the Mongols attacked Japan, and uh, but we'll, there's a lot more to the story than that. We're actually travelling through Japanese history at the moment, so plenty to um, plenty to get our teeth into. But the uh, obviously the 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 big moment of the episode will be the more when the Mongols attacked. Japan so that's to look forward to. Uh, in terms of uh, where the podcast is and the future of the podcast stay tuned until the end of the episode and I'll give you some news about that so uh, we'll be discussing the future of the podcast just after this week's magazine excerpts. Now then as usual in the magazine episodes we go back into the past of the history of the world podcast and dig into the archives, and I like to look at what was being published on this date on years gone by. So I'm going to start way back five years ago, when we we had a little bit of fun actually with the episode that we were publishing about the first villages in the world. So this was during the ancient times, during the ancient episode, or the prehistoric episode, and um, we um, were discussing Çatalhöyük, which is uh, an old settlement found in Turkey, maybe one of the very first villages uh, that uh, that existed, and certainly uh, one of the earliest ones that we've got some knowledge of. And we just had a little bit of fun with the archaeology and um, just trying to envisage what it would have been like for me or you to have lived in Chatelhoyuk, what what sorts of things that we might have been saying to each other. So let's go back now five years and discover a little bit more about this wonderful village. It is 7500 BCE. 
The residents of Tel Abu Huraira have seemingly ventured along the Euphrates River to the more prosperous Marebet to learn of their new agricultural techniques. And Tel Abu Huraira is temporarily low in population as a consequence. Meanwhile, around 300 miles northwest in southern Anatolia, a new society is emerging on the Charshamba River. Local tribes began to coalesce at a site on the river between two mounds rich with fish and water birds. The site is called Chatelhuyuk and is one of the most famous sites of the Neolithic. As at Tel Abu Huraira, the people of Chatelhuyuk began a sedentary lifestyle, building homes for themselves. They built them using mud bricks, a similar method which we saw at Tel Abu Huraira, but we also believe that the residents were using wood for strength and support, similar in principle to a modern timber stud wall. The walls were finished to provide a smooth surface. The strange thing about these houses at Chatelhuyuk is that in most cases you could not enter through the door. The reason? They often didn't build one. Entry into these houses had to be done through the roof by means of a wooden ladder. It would have been great for allowing smoke from the hearths and ovens to escape. I can also imagine great drama whenever it started raining and rain would have been commonplace in this area of the world. Water would have been pouring into your house through the roof unless you covered the hole quite quickly. I can't imagine what it must have been like for the elderly trying to get in and out though. I can't climb that ladder with my legs. Well, we're not carrying you all the way up there again today. Once the elderly person had passed on, probably through boredom after being confined to their house day in and day out, they appear to have been buried under the floor. Your next door neighbour at Chatelhuyuk would have built his house directly against the side of your house, meaning that to leave your house and get to the ground, you would have had to walk along the roofs of all your neighbours' houses. The people of Chatelhuyuk were proud of their homes, decorating the living area with artwork. Sometimes it would be pictures of animals, and sometimes it would be simple geometric patterns. Other residents were using the horns of bulls to create stylish platform decorations, while others went for the more traditional handprint designs. I suppose it depends what you were into, but it is certainly one of the earliest examples of interior design. Have you seen what old Elif, who lives ten houses along the roof that way, has done to her house? She's only drawn pictures of a man killing an oryx on her walls. Has she got no design sense? We can also see that some of the houses had a couple of separate rooms. The second room may have been an area for which residents could go and practice their craft work, possibly making a clay Venus figurine or something similar. If you were cooking, 
the dinner in the main room, you may not want someone in the way making clay figures. Go and do that in your room. Some of the tools and artwork from Chatelhuyuk were crafted from obsidian, which is a volcanic glass-like material. The thing is that the obsidian would not have been sourced at Chatelhuyuk. Residents would have had to have travelled to Cappadocia in central Anatolia and in the direction of Telabu, Herera and Marabet. So it is very likely that some form of trade was going on and quite possibly with people from other Neolithic villages. It is possible that people were bringing obsidian to the agriculturally rich village of Chatelhuyuk in exchange for some surplus stock from the farms. Look at this nice, precious and shiny obsidian, highly sought after. All I ask in return is a couple of cattle to take home to my family. At its most successful, Chatelhoyuk would have been the home to thousands of people, which by using our imagination, we can perhaps picture how vast the site must have been with its back-to-back mud-brick houses. For travellers stumbling across the village, it must have looked unimaginably awesome. Ritualistic behaviours seem to have been quite traditional. The creation of female figurines points towards fertility ritual. The presence of many pieces of artwork relating to animals and hunting, suggest ritual in relation to that too. These are not altogether different from the findings of Upper Paleolithic Europe. Students of the excavations at Chatelhuyuk have suggested that it was a very egalitarian society, with very little evidence of females being treated inferior to men and little evidence of a royal or religious hierarchy. It seems like the people of Chatelhuyuk were all in it together, working together to produce what was needed for the benefit of everyone. You could describe it as a village of liberal communism. Sadly, it appears that people ultimately got a bit bored with Chatelhuyuk and ultimately moved on to pastures greener in other areas of Anatolia. Maybe the site which was built on the eastern mound of the two became a bit run down and for those that didn't move on, they initially built a new village on the western mound before they moved on altogether, possibly by around 5,500 BCE. Our next dip back into history takes us back to uh, the ancient world and we were discussing this four years ago. We were actually summarising the ancient world and looking at what was going on everywhere in the world uh, during this period. And uh, the the excerpt that I've chosen for you uh, takes us back to the year 1500 BCE. And what I find quite interesting about this period is it's the period just before the late Bronze Age collapse. And why I find this interesting is because we see the emergence of these great international powers 
Um, and um, we it sort of sets up the theatre for when the late Bronze Age collapse uh, takes all of these out. But this was a period of, um, you know, it was like a golden age of the world, really, 1500 BCE. So let's go back and listen to what was going on uh, way back in that period of history. It is thought to be around this time that the Mycenaeans could be considered the dominant culture of the modern Greek lands, including the islands of the Aegean Sea and the Minoan island of Crete, and this position would be valid for the foreseeable future. The Mycenaeans would take control of those trade links which made this the most advanced area of Europe during the 2nd millennium BCE, with trade links extending to other parts of the Mediterranean, such as Sicily, for example. In the Near East, we mentioned that the Mitanni Kingdom were exploiting a time of comparative weakness of the Hittite Kingdom. The Mitanni would carve out a position of power in northern Mesopotamia. The Mitanni would sack the Assyrian capital city of Ashur and subjugate the Assyrians, effectively ruling over their lands. However, this would serve as an indicator that the political landscape of the Near East had irreversibly altered. Where the powers of the Near East had previously carved out their own empires by subjugating and conquering local and neighbouring tribes, now the major powers were beginning to interfere in each other's affairs. Firstly, as we already know, the Hittites sacked Babylon and Babylonia had been taken over by the Kassites. Then, as just mentioned, the Mitanni rose up in a power vacuum and sacked Ashur. The New Kingdom Egyptians also had imperial ambitions in the Near East, which encroached on the lands of the Levant, which were also of interest to the Mitanni and the Hittites who were starting to get their act together and reclaim lost ground following their brief period of regroup. This would therefore be a period where diplomatic relationships had to improve as it was not feasible for all nations to use all of their resources in military campaigns against each other. Certainly, if two of the nations were using all of their military resources against each other, then the other nations would be happy to allow them to waste their military resource against each other and wait to exploit the warring nations afterwards while in their weakened state. Therefore, it would sometimes provide a better solution if these nations looked for ways to strengthen their position in the wider world in which they now existed and needed to survive in. We can see some significant political marriages and diplomatic relationships developing between the Hittites, the Mitanni, the New Kingdom Egyptians and the Kassite Babylonians. The first of these entities to perish would not be down to international issues, but internal ones. The Assyrian element of the Mitanni kingdom rose up against their overlords and overthrew them, causing the end of the Mitanni kingdom and creating the Middle Assyrian Empire. 
This was also represent a glorious period in Egyptian history. Thutmose I, Thutmose II and Thutmose III would all be highly influential Egyptian pharaohs in regards to expanding their territory. The new capital city of Thebes in Upper Egypt would be near to the huge New Kingdom ceremonial royal necropolis famed for its Valley of the Kings and for its colossal statues representing the great pharaohs to have reigned over this mighty kingdom. The Egyptian New Kingdom reached a pinnacle in its development by the reign of Amenhotep III, but no one could have foreseen what would happen during the 14th century BCE. It may not be a great surprise to learn that some ancient cultures developed sun worship. The sun is the brightest object in the sky and turns the darkness of night into bright days. We believe that some Bronze Age cultures of this period, such as the Nordic culture of Scandinavia, practised sun worship during this period, and to some degree, the Egyptians practised sun worship, but it was not exclusive. That is, until the pharaoh Amenhotep IV decided that he wanted to make worship of the sun disk called Aten exclusive to the Egyptian New Kingdom, even changing his own name to Akhenaten and moving the capital city to Amarna. The Egyptian people were not keen to let go of their polytheistic traditions though and the Egyptian kingdom suffered due to having a pharaoh more interested in the religious direction as opposed to imperial consolidation and ambitions. The Hittites would be able to reclaim Levantine lands with relative ease and this would continue until after Akhenaten's reign and Artanism was abolished by his son Tutankhamun with the assistance from the priests of Amun. A new dynasty in Egypt would bring the start of the huge reign of Ramesses II. Ramesses II would be a master propagandist, creating many temples and colossal statues dedicated to himself. Quite likely the most famous of Ramesses II's temples is the one built at Abu Simbel, which was built to commemorate his glorious victory at the Battle of Kadesh against the Hittites. However, there are two sides to every story, and the Hittite account of the battle tells the story of a great ambush of the Egyptian army, which prevented them from capturing the city of Kadesh. In the aftermath of the battle, the Hittites under their new monarch, Hattusili III, were happy to negotiate a peace treaty with Ramesses II, in the face of the growing power of the Assyrians under their leader, Shalmaneser I. The Assyrians would rise to their greatest power during this period under the rule of Shalmaneser's son, Tikulti-Ninurna I. Although the Hittites and the Egyptians had been competing for the lands of the Levant over many years, it was still a place of great culture and development and also a place of great myth and legend. We know that modern alphabets migrated out of Egypt from their hieroglyphic script 
reaching the area around the city of Ugarit, where it would develop to become the Phoenician alphabet, a proto-alphabet which would be the ancestor of many modern alphabets. This may not have been the only significant migration during this period, as the pharaoh named in sacred scriptures describing the exodus of the Jewish people out of Egypt by Moses may have been Ramesses II. The event describes the probable beginnings of Judaism, where the agricultural peoples of the lands of modern Israel became the home of the ancient scriptures which would become the Old Testament of the Bible. Elsewhere in the world, the ceremonial centre cultures of South America continued to flourish with the likes of Sechin Alto and the emergence of Chabin de Huantar, which would become highly influential in the future. The ancient Peruvians would master the art of bronze working, while the cultures of Mesoamerica would begin producing pottery. The people of the Lapita culture had successfully colonised Melanesia, including the Solomon Islands, Vanuatu, New Caledonia and Fiji. The Shang dynasty continued to rule over vast swathes of Chinese lands. Now, the year 2020 was uh, a a year of great lockdown for many of us uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic. And uh, I remember spending a lot of my time writing about the Romans. And so this is what we were publishing around three years ago during the podcast. And uh, the episode that we uh, were on on this date three years ago uh, was the Battle of Actium. This is uh, during the period of time between uh, the death of Julius Caesar and the establishment of the Roman Empire. Uh, so it's quite um, quite an important little period here in the middle. Mark Antony, uh, who had ambitions of being the new Julius Caesar, um, had fled eastwards uh, to Egypt, which was under the control of Queen Cleopatra. And uh, the enemy of these two was Octavian. Uh, Octavian uh, was the uh, adopted nephew of Julius Caesar. And uh, he would uh, have ambitions of taking Mark Antony out, his main rival, uh, to the uh, prestigious position of leader of the Roman Republic. And uh, Octavian, of course, became the future Augustus, the first Roman emperor, but what happened exactly when these two mighty forces clashed at the Battle of Actium? The year was now 32 BCE and Mark Antony had decided that he should prepare his naval fleet for conflict and headed to Ephesus on the Aegean coast of Anatolia to gather it together. Cleopatra's Egyptian fleet was accompanying this huge fleet. Then Antony sailed his fleet across to Athens to meet with his land armies. In the meantime, Agrippa had sailed across from the Italian peninsula and taken control of the Peloponnesian fort of Methone. 
which had been fortified by Antony himself. So long before the battle itself, tactical moves were being made by both sides in anticipation of the battle itself. Antony's intentions were to sail across the Ionian Sea and attack the Italian peninsula itself, but Octavian was very aware of this and ensured that his own fleet was stationed to prevent the Ionian crossing. So Antony decided to station his fleet inside the vast Ambracian Gulf, where he could continue preparations until he felt confident enough to be able to successfully take on Octavian's fleet. Agrippa would use this as an opportunity to continue to attack coastal Greek settlements, and so there was somewhat of a stalemate going on into the year 31 BCE. Antony had control of the opening to the Ambracian Gulf, but Antony was keen for his fleet not to emerge from the Gulf and engage with Octavian's fleet in open waters. Antony wanted to do battle when he was ready, and this was possible while he had complete control of the Gulf's entrance. So Octavian and Agrippa continued ravaging the Greek western coast until Antony felt the pressure to abandon the North Promontory and move all of his troops to the south at the settlement of Actium. This would mean that Octavian had partial control of the entrance to the Gulf and so Antony had to prepare for battle. So on the 1st of September 31 BCE, Antony told his troops to prepare for battle the following day. Mark Antony had around 20,000 men and 2,000 archers loaded onto around 300 galleys. Mark Antony was utilising the large and powerful quinquiremes, which Octavian would certainly not have wanted to be ramming his smaller Liburnian galleys. Antony was able to load his quinquiremes with ballistas, capable of catapulting missiles towards enemy galleys. Although Octavian possibly had slightly less infantry, sources differ regarding whether he had more galleys than Antony. Nonetheless, Octavian would have around 3,000 archers, and Octavian's infantrymen would have been trained well to use the heavy projectile plumbatter darts, which would soar great distances with devastating effects. Antony really had no choice but to engage with Octavian now, as Octavian had won this war of attrition by effectively besieging the fleet of Antony within the Ambracian Gulf, denying them vital supplies. Antony had witnessed defections from his ranks to Octavian due to these pressures, and there were also reports of a malaria outbreak which depleted some of his manpower. So Antony was really feeling the pressure to act, as time would only surely make his position worse. A man who had defected from Cassius to Mark Antony during the Liberator's Civil War of the 40s BCE was now also doing the same thing to Mark Antony. His name was Quintus Delius, and by switching sides to Octavian, he would also take details of Mark Antony's battle plan with him as well. So Fortune 
was certainly not favouring Mark Antony going into this conflict. Now it was the morning of the 2nd of September and Octavian had allowed Agrippa command of the fleet which positioned themselves on the Ionian side of the entrance to the Gulf. While Antony commanded his own naval fleet to filter out of the Gulf into the open waters. The Battle of Actium Antony's aim was simply to break out from their besieged position within the Ambracian Gulf. It would have very much suited Antony for there to have been absolutely no military exchanges at all, but the reality is that this was incredibly unlikely. So Antony arranged his fleet in a bulbous formation at the mouth of the Gulf's entrance, and behind this line were the treasure-laden ships of Cleopatra, which needed to be protected at all costs. Agrippa knew that if he could exploit a weakness in the line, then he could potentially surround Antony's entire fleet. The southernmost right-hand flank of Octavian engaged directly with Antony's left-hand flank, with Octavian's marines attempting to board Antony's ships. Agrippa, then personally commanding the northernmost left-hand flank, attempted to stretch themselves out, attempting to surround Antony's right-hand flank. Antony reacted to this by stretching out his own personally commanded right-hand flank and preventing Agrippa's tactic. However, this would create a gap between the right-hand flank and the centre of Antony's formation, which Agrippa would now try to exploit. Octavian's central fleet would surge forward in a bid to exploit this area of weakness and there were major exchanges between the two sets of ships. This would be the real thick of the Battle of Actium, with both sets of ships in very close proximity and the infantry on board now almost able to see the whites of the eyes of their opponents. Projectiles were being exchanged and troops were attempting to board each other's galleys with many being set ablaze and the thick black clouds of smoke floating up from the wooden decks. Cleopatra would notice how engaged the two forces were and saw an opportunity to sail right through the middle with her treasures and into the open seas. Some accounts suggest that Mark Antony was flabbergasted by the apparent departure and abandonment of the battle by Cleopatra. But with Cleopatra's fleet purposefully standing off from direct engagement and laden with treasure, it seems that it was the sensible thing for her to be allowed to escape the battle. Whatever the truth is, it appears that Mark Antony decided to disassemble some of the wooden ballistas on his galleys and open up the sails so that he could also speed away from the battle. Some of Octavian's galleys would attempt to pursue Mark Antony in vain. Possibly as many as two-thirds of Mark Antony's fleet were left to try and defend themselves without him. Perhaps as many as 10,000 of his men 
perished, with the remainder surrendering to Octavian. The armed forces of Mark Antony that had also been abandoned also were pressurised into surrendering to Octavian too. The battle was over. Sorry, when I introduced that clip, I said that uh, Octavian was Julius Caesar's adopted nephew. He, like there was a bit of inaccuracy there. He wasn't. He, he wasn't adopted as a nephew. He was already Caesar's nephew. He uh, Caesar adopted him as his son and heir, not not as his nephew. So a bit like I, I didn't word that correctly. I apologise for that. Uh, but anyway, um, interesting nonetheless to go back and revisit that naval battle. Um, our final uh, visit back into the past ties in somewhat to what we're talking about at the moment in terms of the, the current episodes. Uh, so we're talking about Japan and the uh, a society that resembled uh, feudalism uh, in its uh, medieval European form. Um, so let's go back to what we were talking about this time last year. Um, an episode about feudalism and um, we're going to concentrate on the fall of feudalism and what happened in the aftermath so uh, let's go and listen to that now the essence of feudalism as it started out was that the vassal would offer his lord a service whether military by council financial or by supplying resources and in return he would receive somewhere to live or lands to own and protection. In particular, as medieval times moved forward in England, the kings were clearly producing enough wealth to be able to simply pay their vassals money for services, and this enabled the lords to be able to employ the services of specialist individuals, such as professional soldiers, who were particularly loyal to their lord. This shift in the nature of feudalism was recognised by the British historian Charles Plummer in the 19th century, who coined the phrase bastard feudalism to describe this new nature of feudal exchanges. Some historians argue that this is not a good way to describe the change because it has too much of a negative connotation when it was just a simple change of the nature of the system as opposed to an act of corruption. The world was changing and priorities were changing alongside it. There were a number of things that could be dissatisfying about the feudal system, especially as it empowered the vassals and the lords of the manors much more than would have been ideal for many monarchs. Two of England's most famous historical documents were linked to the consequences of the feudal system. The Doomsday Book was compiled by William the Conqueror following his redistribution of English lands to those who had become his vassals by assisting his invasion of England around 20 years earlier. It was William's way of knowing exactly who owned what in his new realm. The other document is the Magna Carta, which was a legal document between the King of England and his barons, 
which was instigated by the powerful barons of King John's kingdom, which was documented around 150 years after the Norman conquest of England. This represents an example of when public loyalties could easily sway towards the barons who had become wealthy and powerful thanks to the feudal system. As the medieval period reached its later decades, the merchant classes started becoming more wealthy as trade opportunities started becoming more and more exotic and the power of cash over produce started to escalate. So vassals such as lords and barons started demanding money in return for favours and this is where the culture termed as bastard feudalism started becoming more prominent. However, neither barons nor kings could accumulate considerable wealth now without expert travelling merchants and so there was a shift in value from the medieval knight to the modern explorer, which symbolised a huge change in culture of Western Europe, and that meant that feudalism in its purest form was becoming somewhat obsolete. Kings would find it much more financially viable and prudent in terms of national security to construct private armies loyal to the crown, and therefore taking the power away from the greedy lords and barons. The king would still need his lords and barons, but they would have less ability to hold the king to ransom. We also talked about serfdom earlier in the episode, whereby a man and his family would become tied to the estates of the manor for life. With the distribution of wealth, came the enhanced use of coinage in society and so a serf could save money and then potentially buy his freedom. Another critical factor which changed the entire nature of medieval Europe was the devastating Black Death which was a wave of the bubonic plague that swept through Europe during the 14th century and which surpassed the plague of Justinian in terms of deadliness. It killed around half of the population. This caused a great shortage in manpower in all classes and on all manorial estates, making the feudal system ineffective in many places. So the devastation of the population and the popularity of cash as a form of service were two of the greatest factors that influenced the change in society from feudal style arrangements. By the 16th century, feudalism had become unusual. The merchant classes started having more financial influence on society and kings would use money to pay their soldiers directly as a private army meaning that they didn't have to rely on the barons for manpower. Feudal agreements continued to exist in France up until the French Revolution in the 18th century, but they were much more of a rarity in society than during the medieval period. In the modern world, we see political commentators make reference to the fact that their societies are edging back from less of a capitalistic society to more of a feudal society, and this has been said of the United States. 
This means that there is a belief that the poorer classes of society are becoming more open to bespoke legal agreements from the wealthy. This kind of politics in the modern world is referred to as neo-feudalism. As we started this episode referring to the Far East, we should return there by demonstrating that the last major stronghold of a feudal society in a traditional sense may very well be Japan. The shogunates who took control of the country from the 12th century would distribute lands and this arrangement would be dominant until the turn of the 17th century. Now don't forget to stay tuned to find out a bit more about what you can expect over the coming weeks of the History of the World podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of the History of the World podcast, uh, the History of the World podcast magazine. If you enjoy the podcast and you want to support the podcast, then please visit our website, historyofthewordpodcast.com. Click on the Patreon link and sign up to make a monthly donation. When you do, you'll become a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati and you will qualify for gifts and rewards you can uh, also become uh, like um, Brad Mist and Anagha Shetty who have uh, become History of the World Podcast Illuminati members this week thank you to you both now if you want to access uh, bonus material and you want to listen to the podcast ad free then subscribe to the podcast on Spotify. And if you want to get in touch with the podcast, drop me a line at history of the world podcast at mail.com. Listener messages and reviews. Now, I did promise that I'll give you some news about the future of the podcast, and um, there's going to be more of an official uh, state of the podcast um, address uh, towards the end of the month of October. So um, I ask you just to wait patiently for that. Um, I One thing I'll hasten to add is don't worry, this podcast is not ending. Uh, so don't worry about that. But um, the approach of the podcast might have to change and it, there's not a great deal that I can do about that at this moment in time. But um, I'll, the the idea being that I do want to get back to uh, publishing weekly episodes that's where I want to be but um, I have to take a bit of a reality check with everything that's going on at the moment so I'll tell you more about that in a few weeks so let me tell you what we've got coming up this weekend I intend to um, I intend to post uh, the next episode uh, volume for episode 61 on Kamakura Japan and um, that's uh, following on from the chronological story uh, following the Battle of Danaura. 
And then after that, I think the following week, uh, the intention is to post a History of the World podcast magazine uh, episode. That will come out maybe around about the 22nd of October. And then uh, the week after, um, I'm not sure what episodes we'll be able to provide for you on that weekend, but um, I'm looking to publish a state of the podcast uh, at the very least, just so that you guys know exactly what's going on with the podcast. You deserve to know you all support the podcast uh, so well uh, that I, I really want to be up front with you about everything that's going on and uh, how it's going to affect my ability to publish episodes. Um, but uh, yes, certainly don't worry, the podcast is is still got a bright future, it's still very much... Um, into this project it's going nowhere don't worry about that um listener messages this week james nicholson has written in and said hi chris i absolutely love your podcast i've been listening to it every day for over six months now i can't tell you how much i've learned already and i'm really thankful for that while i was always interested in history i never knew where or how to start with it until i found your work now i take notes while listening to the episodes and um, look into certain topics myself and keep learning new things thanks to you. I seriously didn't see a single other podcast that compares to yours when it comes to how comprehensive and well-written it is. I, of course, made sure to rate it and share it with a wider group of my friends. I was just wondering whether you've ever considered writing a book with your knowledge and ability to grab the attention of your audience I'm sure it would be a lovely piece of writing. Best regards, Jim. Jim, thank you for such a warm message. Um, and I, I seem to, that almost has become one of my cliches, hasn't it? Um, but I'm always blown away by how kind and um, complimentary some of you are when it comes to this podcast. And, uh, you know, I've, a lot of work goes into the podcast, don't get me wrong, but still... I've got no right to be uh, sort of applauded for that uh, unless the work is of any kind of quality or unless you're enjoying it, unless you want to listen to it. So um, it's really humbling to receive such wonderful messages. Um, yes, I mean, um, many years ago, I thought about writing a book um, about history um, and, um, you know, I did. I thought, wouldn't it be wonderful to explore the history of the cities of, of England, where I live? Um, I even um, contemplated writing um, like a web blog about the history of the universe. So going right back to the Big Bang and how the solar system was formed and all that kind of thing. So like, I'm, I'm not alien to uh, the stories of uh, the first uh, or the beginnings of our universe. So... Um, I thought about that, but then also, really, um, in order to do something like that of any kind of, um, you know, in any kind of standard, I think, you know, you have to be academically qualified and and you have to demonstrate that you're an authority to write on such subjects um, in order to be taken seriously by any publisher. Um, suddenly, I started listening to podcasts and I thought, wow. That's something I could do with, uh, you know, I did already have a decent library of history books before um, I even started writing this podcast. So I knew that I had 
uh, some decent resources that I could use uh, already in my bookshelf. So the the prehistoric volume um, wasn't that difficult to write, especially with such good web resources out there to triangulate some of the material in my books. Um, and here we are today, you know, still writing it. And, um, you know, I never really imagined it would be such a comprehensive and successful project like it's become. I sort of started out just thinking, oh, well, let's give it a go and just see what happens. Here we are almost five and a half years later. So um, that's the story behind it, Jim. Yes, I have considered writing a book, but certainly not at the moment. Um, it's, it's enough work for me to write this podcast without considering writing a book, Jim. Uh, maybe if this was my full-time um, vocation, um, maybe it would be something I could consider, but it really isn't a plan for the near future, unfortunately. But thank you any, anyway, Jim. Well, that's it for another week. Thank you so much for listening in and uh, we'll see you next time for some more Japanese history. Until then, be good. The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at history of the world podcast at mail.com and don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time. <laughs>